pray together. God, we pray we would run to you in all times of life, that we would see Christ as both the founder and the perfecter of our faith, that we would live in faith, that we'd run to you to find grace. In these few moments, I pray that you would use your spirit to help us see your truth, that we may believe the truth, as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church available for first through third graders if you'd like to take advantage of that. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. For those of you who know me even slightly well, you know that I enjoy hunting, I enjoy the outdoors, and I enjoy guns, right? That's something every red-blooded American needs to experience at least once in their life. I enjoy owning guns, I enjoy shooting guns for sport and hunting and all that sort of thing. And if you know anything about gun safety, you will know that there's something called an AD. It's not uh, what, what an AD is, it's called an accidental discharge. An accidental discharge is exactly what it sounds like. When you shoot your weapon and you weren't expecting to shoot it. Some can uh, be humorous, others can be deadly, it can be a terrible event, or it can be something you look back to and laugh about. I've never had an accidental discharge, but I took a class on gun safety and the gun instructor said something very important. He said, you know, when you first are interacting with a new weapon... You normally are not in danger of accidentally discharging that weapon because you're being very careful. It's new. You're going through the process. You're getting to know how it operates. But it's when you've been handling it for years and years and years and you're just sure that it was unloaded. You just, you've been doing the same thing over and over again. You're very familiar with the situation. You're familiar with the firearm. That's when you have to be careful. Because familiarity breeds complacency. We see this reflected in the statistics of auto accidents as well. 52% of all car accidents occur within five miles of a person's home. 70% occur within 10 miles of a person's home. Why? Because when you're driving the streets you know so well Maybe you pay attention to something else. Hey, look, my neighbor got a new potted plant on their front porch. Bam! You know? Familiarity breeds complacency. As we approach John chapter 3, what is known, and I agree, as perhaps the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, in the Gospels, regarding... I think you can argue in the book of Romans maybe some uh, as one of the greatest chapters in the epistles, but when we look at the Gospels, John chapter 3, the greatest chapter in regards to salvation, we're coming this morning to the greatest verse in regards to salvation. When I decided to preach through the Gospel of John a year ago, it was this verse that I looked at with great anticipation, but also with great fear. 
Because as we approach John chapter 3 and verse 16, we need to be aware that familiarity can breed complacency if we're not careful. So we'll begin reading back in verse 9. The context begins way back in verse 1. We've been reading those scriptures for the past several weeks. We'll read from verse 9 down through verse 21, but our text for this morning are verses 16, 17, and 18. So let's look there together as we've asked God's blessing on the scripture. John chapter 3 and verse 9, Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? How is it that new birth comes through the Holy Spirit and without this you can't even see the kingdom of God? And Jesus answered to him, are you a the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the light that has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does does, uh, wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John chapter 3 and verse 16 is the most well-known verse in the Gospel of John. In fact, chapter 3 and verse 16 is the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. If you were raised in church, and probably even if you were not, odds are that you memorized this verse or heard this verse as a child. However, we need to be careful With knowing this verse so well, we may perhaps miss what John is communicating with verse 16. R.C. Sproul says this is the most famous verse in all of Scripture, but it is the most distorted verse as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his sermons on the Gospel of John would say the following, while it is possibly the most familiar and well-known verse in the whole Bible, it is true to say that there is no verse that is so frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted as this particular verse. Nothing is therefore more fatal with this verse than to just repeat it generally as if it were some sort of incantation. And what he means by that is that some would treat John 3.16 as some sort of spiritual pixie dust or incantation or spell that should be cast over a person. And when this verse is quoted, all the darkness fades away and this person is then a believer in Christ. 
We need to be careful, friends. I was told this story before. I'll tell it again to warn you. I was with Becky right after we had gotten married. We were in the middle of, uh, I was serving as a youth pastor. We were developing really our knowledge of Scripture and our theology together. We had the opportunity to go to an evangelistic event down in Indianapolis to uh, give the gospel where there are going to be 10,000 teenagers there for an international 4-H convention. We partnered with a group. We split up from this table and and after about an hour they came back and said, how many people have you led to the Lord? And we're like, well, I mean, none. I've only talked to like five or six people. And the lady looked at us with disgust and said, I've already led 40 people to the Lord. We looked at her and, it's only been an hour. That's like almost a person a minute. We, We paid more closely what was happening with some people in the group and the question was asked to teenagers as they walk by, do you want to go to hell? No. Well, come over here and pray this prayer with me and God will take you to heaven when you die. And so they would quote what's often referred to as the sinner's prayer. That person would repeat the words after them. And sadly, we watched and we were grieved as some walked away with a false assurance of their salvation. At the end of the day, Becky had had a wonderful long conversation with a little girl, a a young teenager who was seeking, made a profession of faith. And I had the opportunity to do the same with a high school boy. And as we got together to end, I'll never forget, they had a tally sheet with over 400 people. They said they led to Christ. If that is your version of evangelism, friend, you need to read your Bible. John 3.16 is not some magic spell to cast over a soul and thus cast out the devil. John 3.16 is a beautifully simple theological treatise on what salvation is and the motivation that brought salvation to this world. But we need to be careful that our familiarity with a verse like this doesn't breed complacency in our hearts of not not slowing down and reading carefully. That we would not take this verse and lift it out from its context. That we would not take this verse and read it and interpret it from a 21st century perspective. But rather we would ask the question, as this verse is given to us in this context, what does God want to teach us from his inspired word here this morning? We're going to look at this verse in its context and we're going to see that John 3.16 gives us beautiful and simple gospel truths through which we discover the depth and true weight of glorious theology of what it teaches us about God. That being said, we also need to pause and be reminded that John 3.16 is not the full gospel. If the extent of your gospel knowledge is John 3.16, you have an inadequate understanding of the gospel for there's nothing in this verse about the death or blood of Christ. 
nor is there mention of the atonement, nor is there mention of sin or the wrath of God. And so this leaves this verse open for people to make of it what they want. That doesn't That doesn't mean the verse isn't important and it isn't an amazing verse. It just means that it's not the full picture of the gospel. It's like Amazing Grace, which is an amazing song. But unsaved people sing it and think it's wonderful. But you're not going to find an an unsaved person singing the hymn, In Christ alone my hope is found. Why? Because in in the song Amazing Grace, it's a beautiful hymn. But if that's all you know of hymnody, you have major gaps in your theological knowledge. And so you will find John 3.16 painted on signs and worn on t-shirts and held up at rallies and all of these things for people literally making it whatever they want to make it. And so we need to be careful this morning and focus and say, what does this verse say and what does it teach us about God lest we fall into the rut of 21st century shallow theology and maybe even doctrinal error. Now that being said, with the warnings of John 3.16, let me say something about the incredible blessing and depth of John 3.16. There is a reason why this is the most famous verse in the Bible. The truth found in verse 16 is the center, it's the very foundation of the gospel message, and it should be the very foundation of your life and your life's message as well. The powerful truth found in this verse was the epicenter of the preaching of Spurgeon who said that in this verse he wished that it might be put in the forefront of all of my volumes of discourses as the sole topic of my life's ministry. Matthew Henry in his very accessible commentary states the following, here we have the very marrow and quintessence of the whole gospel. That faithful saying that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the children of men from death and recover them to life. And so with that foundation in mind, let's look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. And I'd like you to look at that verse with me and notice the very first word, and that is the word for. It reminds us that this is a continuation of the thoughts from the portion that immediately became, that came before. And when we understand what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus and drawing these Old Testament truths to the forefront and helping him understand that the truth that Jesus is presenting is not a new truth, but it's the same truth that's been presented from the same God of the Old Testament, we understand how this bleeds forward. Nicodemus is still trying to comprehend that seeing the kingdom of God comes from the Holy Spirit, and he's also trying to understand how in the world eternal life in the kingdom of God is open to anybody but the Jews. He's in, this, he's in these throws in his mind as, God, as Jesus is drawing the truths of God from the Old Testament into Nicodemus's mind and saying God's plan has always been for the world without distinction as a whole. And that it's always been the Holy Spirit that does the work of regeneration to turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to breathe life into the soul, and thus bring faith. 
So Nicodemus is in these throes as we enter into verse 16, and we see this word that ties the whole thing together. Now before I give you my outline and begin my message, I want to give you one more note. I know it's kind of an extended introduction, but I think we need it this morning. There's some debate among scholars um, as to whether or not verses 16 through 21 should be the words of Christ or not. Some of you have red letter editions. If you have a red letter edition, you'll see that the words are read all the way down through verse 21, R-E-D, they're read. Church history has, um, has historically held that verses 16 through 21 were the words of Jesus. When I say modern scholarship, you know, mid-1800s, and, and I know a lot of you don't think 180 years ago was modern, but modern scholarship would hold that verses 16 through 21 are actually John's comments and his, uh, either his meditations or his explanations of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, okay? And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't really carry much weight for our discussion this morning. Very few of you perhaps would be involved in that discussion, but for those that are, I want you to just put that to the side because there is a, a, a push today of people who would say what Jesus says in Scripture is more important than what the apostles say. And friends, all of it is inspired Scripture. So whether it's the words of Jesus or it's John's devotional thoughts or it's John's explanatory thoughts on Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, it doesn't really matter for you and for me this morning because no matter where you land, it's inspired scripture that's given in the first century through the pen of the Apostle John that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is effective and effectual for you and for me this morning, okay? And so if you're involved in that in that debate, and you wanted me to say something, there you go. Uh, set it aside. No matter where you land on that, we are going to land in the same place this morning that it's effective for us. And so let's look at verses 16, 17, and 18. I'd like to first show you the demonstration of God's love in verse 16, the first half of verse 16, the demonstration of God's love. John records, for God so loved. The focus of this verse and the two following verses, 16, 17, and 18, the focus of these verses is the incomprehensible depth and breadth of the love of God. John is making a statement solely about how amazing God's love is. God so loved. The CSB would emphasize it this way, for God loved the world in this way. The NLT would say, for this is how God loved the world. God so loved. And that's the undergirding theme of these three verses is the astounding love of God. That God's love is greater than anything that you can imagine. And you take your mind to the nth degree of your mind's capacity to understand the love of God. And you haven't even started yet. That God loved the extent of his love. God so loved the reach of his love is the word the world. 
And this phrase stands in direct contrast to what Nicodemus believed to be true about the Jewish nation. Nicodemus was struggling so much because he viewed the love of God as directed specifically to the Jews and only to the Jews for the rest of time. Nicodemus would say that God's love is limited to the Jews, but Jesus explains that God's love is directed, listen carefully, at fallen humanity in general. That's what that word world means. It just means fallen humanity in general. That God's heart is extended in love to those who are sinners. Now we need to understand what this verse is teaching and what this verse is not teaching. This is not teaching universalism. That God's love is so big enough and squishy enough to just forget that anyone in this world has ever sinned, right? One day, no matter where you, what you believe, you'll all end up in paradise. We're all climbing the same mountain. For God so loved the world. It's not what this verse is teaching. We need to be careful to identify the word world correctly here. The word world refers, as I said earlier, I believe, to fallen humanity in general. He's not making a specific statement here. He's referencing fallen humanity. He's saying, my love extends to those who are sinners. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. I couldn't find a better way to say it, so I'll just read you the way that he puts this. He says, in John's gospel, world usually means either not just the Jews or the world as a fallen entity. And here, I think John is using it to emphasize both to Nicodemus. The wonder of the gospel is that God so loved this fallen world that he gave his only son. There is an aspect of the world that points to God's love not being exclusively for the Jews, but for all those who have turned against him. That God's heart is poured out with love for fallen humanity. God loving the world means that the motivation for the plan of salvation is the eternal love of God directed towards people who are in their sin and separated from Him. Perhaps it would be best to recognize that the use of this word is to, recognize, is, is to call out the greatness of God's love. And let me, let me give you an illustration that will help you maybe a little bit understand how John is using this word. Last week, Becky made a blueberry pie. And it was amazing. Right? In fact, I may have said, I probably said, this is the best blueberry pie in the world. Okay? Now, when I made that statement, perhaps I would have texted that to someone. They're not going to take that text and say, I wonder what he means by that. Has he had blueberry pie in Europe? It's pretty good. I mean, has he had blueberry pie in Kentucky? Because they got good blueberries. Have you had Maine blueberries? Their blueberries are good. I mean, he's right on the border of Michigan. I hope he got his blueberries from Michigan. Michigan blueberries are the best. That's not, they would understand that's not the point that I'm making. The point that I would be making in that statement is to say this 
I can't even, the only way that I can explain to you how amazing this is, is to take the generality of the world and put it above it. And so John says, God's love extends to the world. God's love is so great that he even loves fallen humanity. It's the grandeur of God's love. And it's this greatness, this grandeur, this this incomprehensible love that is greater than you and I could ever imagine. So great that even the angels stand in heaven and when that love is worked out on a human soul and thus rescuing that soul from hell, the Bible says that even the angels long to understand what it's like. The immensity of God's love. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, does God love me? There's your answer. It's the motivation for the action of God's love that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. This giving is the action that's motivated by the love of God the way that this is worded is to communicate the giving of, G, uh, of God and giving Jesus was a giving that was not under compulsion, but it just flowed freely. It's like the candy jar at Grandma's house, right? Like, if, if, if the parents were there, the answer is one or two. But if the parents aren't there, you're going to send them home anyway, Right? So grandparents, what do you do? It just flows freely. That's right. right. <laughs> it's a grandparent right there. And, and, and the way that this is phrased, that God loved the world and that he gave, it's this idea that this giving is motivated by love. It's not as though someone twisted his arm or someone is having to bribe him or, or, or he's giving out of compulsion. But that the love of God is overflowing into this world and so the Son is given. It's the action of love. He gives with no reservation. He gives with no hesitation. He gives with no manipulation or coercion. The Father gives freely and full of love. What does He give? Does he love enough to give the archangel Michael? Or maybe 50 angels or messengers? Or maybe a thousand? Or does he love enough to just give one? That he gave. His only Son. Some of your translations may have the word begotten in there. It's the word monogenes, the only, only one. The only one who comes from God. Begotten of God in eternity past. Life flowing from the Father to the Son in eternity past, which makes Him the Father and makes Him the Son as the first two persons of the Trinity. That word only 
means unique, one of a kind. There's never one like him now and there will never be another one like him later. And Scripture is clear that it was the action of the Father to send one. Not Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad, but only Christ. I'd like you to notice as well, not only the singular nature of giving the the action of giving the agent of the Son, but I'd like you to also see that it was a, an act of the Son and the Father together. It was the joy of the Father to send the Son out of love. And it was the joy of the Son to come. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That the Trinitarian will, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, with one will, had a desire and a will to accomplish redemption through the sending of the Son. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit. One love to accomplish redemption. And so you see in the, the humanity of Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and His human will aligning with the divine will of the Son. And so you have Him proclaiming and, 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 and praying and sweating great drops of blood as He's under this stress. As He said, Lord, let this cup pass from Me. Is there another way? But then the human will of Christ aligns with the divine will of the Son of God where He says, not My will, but Yours be done. And so we have this loving action of the Father and the Son poured out in the person of Jesus. And that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This verse in Hebrews reminds us that this mission that the Son was given to was a mission of sacrifice. Later, to be followed with glory. And so when Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up, so it was a lifted up of glory and ascension, but it was also a lifting up of suffering of the cross. As the Father and the Son and the Spirit work out their mission of love and giving the Son, and as the Son works out his mission of redemption in giving up his life. If you know Scripture well, you can't help but think of Genesis chapter 22, which was referenced in our Scripture reading this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Take your son your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. And you know the story of Abraham rising early in the morning, living in obedience, not understanding, but God knowing that if there was one action of love towards God 
that Abraham could make, it was to be to sacrifice his only son. And so he puts Isaac on the altar, Abraham being an aged man, Isaac willingly trusting and giving of himself, but yet the illustration stops short. And it is just that, an illustration. Because in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy as the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. Do not do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham, I see the depth of your love towards God. And here in the giving of the son, we see the father's depth of love for unsaved people. And that when the time came to nail Christ to the cross, that hand was not stayed. And the act of redemption and the substitutionary depth, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, revealing the unfathomable love of the Father. So we have a question. What is an adequate response to that love? For the demonstration of the love of God is given through Christ. What is the only proper response? Look with me to the rest of verse 16. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I'd like to show you, first of all, that the response to God's love is a specific response, and it's the response of belief. It's the response of faith. We need to read carefully here in order to not read our own preconceived notions or maybe even read our own personal theological leanings into this text. We need to focus on what this verse is teaching us this morning, and it is this. The only proper response to the love of God the Father and the God the Son and God the Holy Spirit demonstrated through the giving of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross on your behalf is that you would believe. That is the only proper response. This verse is not teaching. Careful. It's not teaching that everyone in the world is born with some innate ability to choose or reject Christ as they see fit on their own volition. That's not what this verse is teaching. Some have zeroed in on that word whoever and have tried to make this verse say what it doesn't say. What this verse says is that if you read the original, it says in order that anyone who believes or all who would come in faith, all who would believe in him, it gives a, a in order that phrase, the Hinnah clause there, for the purpose that anyone who believes, that's the key phrase there, that's the key word. If th- this verse is running to the word love, and then it is making a beeline for the word believe. God loved the world, so believe. 
And if you believe, no one will be cast out. No matter your nationality, no matter your language, no matter your economic status, no matter the color of your skin, no matter your background, no matter the broken home you came from, if you turn to Christ in faith, you will receive life. That's what this verse is saying. If you've doubted God's love, look to the cross and then believe. For there's no one that will be cast out. Believe. But it's not faith that saves. It's the object of the faith that saves because it's believe in Him. In Him. In Jesus. Our faith is not in faith itself. It is in Christ alone. Friend, your faith is only as good as its object. And if your faith is some prayer that you prayed or some work that you've done, you need a better object. Look to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith. What is the result of those who believe? That that faith in Christ. That those who believe should not perish, but have eternal life. And so John continues this dichotomy between darkness and light and, and death and life. There's a contrast, perishing and living, life and death, being with God's grace, being separated from God's grace. You know, it's been said there are two types of people in the world, those who separate people into two categories and those who don't, you know? And, and in, in, in this context of eternal life, of faith, Jesus is one of those people, okay? He's one of those people who says there are only two categories here. Perishing and living. Perishing does not mean annihilation, or a cease of existence, the contrast is given between life with God and his mercy and grace, or life without the mercy and grace of God, but rather the object of God's wrath in your sin. It's a separation from the grace and goodness of God. Contrary to what a lot of people think, hell is not separation from God. People in hell wish it was separation from God. Hell is a separation from the mercy and grace of God because it is God in hell as as the one who runs hell. The devil doesn't run hell. The devil's punished in hell. It's God's wrath that makes hell what it is. And so this perishing is not a ceasing to exist, nor is it simply getting away from God. It's eternal damnation in a place created for Satan and his demons. To which all sin must go that's not covered by the blood of Christ. And all those who die without believing will perish in hell for all of eternity. But those who place their faith and trust in Christ alone find what John calls in verse 16, eternal life. As we look back to the previous section of chapter 3, we see a parallel of him continuing verses 14 and 15 and drawing the understanding into Nicodemus's mind that all have been bitten by those serpents and all must look to the Son of Man who is lifted up. The only hope 
that we have is to look to the cross of Calvary as the Son of Man is lifted up to take our place. I'd also like you to notice in verse 16 the security that is offered through Christ. Those who come to Christ in faith will not perish. Once you've been recreated by Christ, you cannot be unrecreated. Once you have the life that God has infused into your heart, you cannot have that life taken away. We sang, he will hold me fast. If we have to turn that song around and sing, I will hold him fast, we are all in big trouble, friends, because we will all let go. And yet we find the security and the understanding that the regeneration that God provides is the very life of God infused into us. And once you are raised from the dead, you are raised spiritually to eternal life. And that life beginning now. That all those who believe will never perish. The love of God is broad enough to accomplish, excuse me, the the love of God is broad enough to encompass all of humanity. Yet, it is narrow enough to be directed specifically at those who believe. And so you have this vast love of God that has a specific focus on all who believe. John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither will any man pluck them out of my hand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, in order to understand two nuances to that verse, we need to read verses 17 and 18, because you probably have have not memorized verses 17 and 18, but these three verses, I believe, are meant to go together as a unit in one thought regarding God's love. And let me show you why I believe that. I've shown you the demonstration of God's love. I've shown you the response to God's love. I'd like to show you the nature of God's love in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world, into fallen humanity in general, not making a specific statement, but just fallen humanity to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, the nature of God's love is not condemnation, but salvation. And so those who would believe that there is some maniacal God who enjoys and gets some thrill out of the suffering of the wicked, verse 17 blows that out of the water. It is not the nature of God's love to condemn, but to save. Now, does that mean that hell doesn't exist? No, but it means that the God's love encompasses and its goal the nature of it is salvation now the reason this is important is because it stands in contrast to two common views one not really as common today the other is common the first view it stands in contrast to is the view of Nicodemus that when Messiah would come his purpose would be to come and condemn everyone who's not a Jew 
that Messiah comes and he conquers the world and gets rid of everyone else. Like, like he's the conquering king, and by conquering king, they don't mean come and love and provide for us, but come and kill everyone we don't like. And so John makes the comment, no, 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 no. The nature of God's love, the nature of the coming of Christ, God's love poured out through the person of Jesus, the nature of that love is not a condemning love from the Father. It is a saving love. So he's once again addressing Nicodemus's uh, false view of the nature of Messiah. The second one, which is, has been common throughout all of church history, um, is, it was made popular by Marcion in, in, in church history. And, and basically that says that you have an angry father and a loving son, right? You have a God the Father who is this angry um, volcano, and you have Jesus, who is the, you know, the water to turn that lava to rock and cool it down. And so you have an angry father, you have a loving son, and they're at odds with each other. And you will see this reflected very commonly. If not careful, you'll fall into the same, into the same boat of, of, of someone presenting this false idea of the nature of God, of somehow pitting God against himself. Like this part of God doesn't want to save you and this part of God does. That's foolishness and totally unbiblical because the love of the Father is not condemnation. The love of the Father is revealed in salvation for it is not his desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's the nature of the grandeur and the vastness of the love of the Father. Magnificent love. But verse 18 would reveal to us, verse 17 shows us the nature of this love being a salvific love, not a condemning love. And verse 18, showing us the boundary to God's love. I, I tried to find a better word than boundary. I'm not a wordsmith. I even looked in a thesaurus, right? I couldn't. I'll, I'll try to explain to you what I mean by this, okay? Let's begin by going back to that phrase. God's love is vast enough to encompass all of fallen humanity. But yet, it is narrow enough to be applied to only those who believe. That is the consistent theme throughout the Gospel of John that we're going to see. And so the boundary to God's love is given to us in verse 18. It's hinted at in 16 and 17 as well. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Believe, believe, believe. That's the boundary to God's love. Belief. Faith. It's a very simple boundary. It's not crawling ten yards on your knees in order to earn favor or merit with God, which is a doomed exercise. It is not giving to the church, nor is the boundary to God's love in your life, the family that you were brought up in, 
the country in which you were raised, or the language in which you speak. The boundary to God's love is belief. It is faith. What condemns the unbeliever, listen carefully, church family, what condemns the unbeliever is not their sin. It is their unbelief. Because when a person believes, their sin is then forgiven. So you can say sin does not send someone to hell. Unforgiven sin sends someone to hell. Do you see the difference there? Because you and I are still sinners. If, if just sin, pure sin in general, 